You're listening to Let's Think On It, featuring Dr. Mark Westfall. Welcome, listeners. Thanks for joining me. Tonight, we're going to have a conversation about the coronavirus. I know, I know. We're all tired of it. I don't want to hear any more about it. But we need to stay focused. We're in the fourth quarter. We've got to stay focused to finish out the game. Um, we're going to have a guest from Memphis, Tennessee, infectious disease specialist, Steve Threckeld. Uh, we're going to talk about where we are, 2021, January, with regards to the coronavirus. We're also going to talk about coronavirus vaccination. You probably haven't received it yet. You may be having thoughts about whether or whether or not you should get it. So we're going to touch base on that, maybe help lower some of your anxiety about it. Um, so thanks for listening, and let's get, let's get going. Dr. Threckeld and I, he's, we go way back. Uh, Steve is an infectious disease specialist in Memphis. And we first met in undergrad at Rhodes College in Memphis, uh, where he's from and where I'm not. But we, we met there uh, freshman year, uh, studied together Let's just skip years. over that, most of that particular narrative. <laughs> <laughs> Steve helped get me through college and med school, let's put it that way. Because after college, we went to med school at UAB. And uh, Steve really is a brilliant mind, uh, great teacher. Um, and so tell the audience, after medical school at University of Alabama, Birmingham, what did you do after that? So I stayed in, in Birmingham, and uh, for four years, I did the internal medicine uh, residency at, uh, at UAB and did a chief medical resident year there. I uh, got married uh, during my third year residency there, and then uh, my wife, Ginger, and I moved off to Boston, where I did infectious disease training for three years. I did my clinical uh, training at Massachusetts General Hospital and uh, worked on immunology and virology, mostly related to HIV infection at, at Harvard Med School. And then uh, we moved back for free babysitting to, uh, to Memphis, where I practiced with uh, my brother, Mike, and our adopted brother, Ahmad Omer, uh, and a couple other folks along the way that we uh, share some call with and new partners. And so we've been back here for, I've been back for 23 years practicing. Uh, I also work at uh, Baptist Memorial Hospital uh, primarily. Uh, I'm the sort of director of infectious disease uh, for a large 22-bed hospital system across Tennessee, Mississippi, and, uh, and to a lesser degree, yeah. Arkansas. So now you said 22-bed uh, system. You meant 22 hospital system. Hospital system. Sorry, that's yeah. correct. Sorry. Yeah. Um, 22 hospitals. Yeah, there's more than 22 <laughs> beds. <laughs> but uh, so we've been pretty busy, uh, particularly during the kind of areas in, in November and December when it really struck Tennessee. Uh, we were kind of the number one, the number one spot in the number one country in the world. So that was uh, not the best time. Pretty hectic. So and, and as part of that, I wanted the listeners to kind of get a sense of, you know, what it's like for someone on the front line, because for the average listener, I, I, even now, I still think with all the flooding and what's on the TV and stuff, people have heard the coronavirus out the wazoo, but it's really hard for them to understand the day-to-day life of someone in the healthcare field. So what has your day-to-day life been like since March? I mean, since last spring? Yeah. Well, let me let me start with a very short anecdote that happened just a couple of weeks ago, and that was a very, uh, very tough young nurse, energetic, tough. Um, and she broke down in tears uh, in front of me uh, on a weekend afternoon when she was letting a uh, an elderly wife know that her husband was not going to survive and they needed to withdraw care uh, that we were doing on him. And of course, they can't visit. So that's one of the big stressors and, and the real nightmares of this. And so she talked to this, this sweet lady who said that, well, she knew that was what she had to do because her husband had already done, had always done the right thing by her. And this woman was so gracious and so kind. And, and my friend, the young nurse, uh, was began to choke up talking to her. And the wife 
said, now, sweetheart, don't, you know, it's okay. You're going to be okay. And, and this gracious lady was comforting the nurse, having to tell her that her husband was not going to survive. And it was just too much for her. And she just broke down. And she, after she hung up, she said, I'm just tired of people dying every day uh, like this. Oh, wow. And so th- that's really the result of, you know, nine and 10 months of this. And so uh, from the time we di- diagnosed the first case in Memphis, um, you know, I, that was March the 12th, I think, 11th or 12th here. And I have since that time, uh, for example, have taken uh, exactly two days off. I think I also took a half day at Christmas uh, in addition to that. So uh, a lot of days in a row, really. Uh, and that's, that. that's a seven-day-a-week work week. That is. That, two that days total, listeners. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. And, uh, and the average day, um, weekday, is somewhere between 7 a.m., and uh, probably midnight to 1 a.m. is when we generally uh, finish up. There are occasionally nights that are longer and a, and a few that are shorter. But, um, you know, it is – you don't want to insult the dignity and honor of people who served in combat for our country. But but it is something of a wartime kind of mentality. It's a yeah. job that does not end, and uh, and you're, you're quite literally fighting against death and, uh, and some very bad stuff. And, and, again, I think it is very hard for people – who don't? Who just look at the numbers flash by the TV screen every day and see how many people died and how many people? It's hard. To, it's hard to see that what that nurse experienced, you know. And the nurses get it harder than we do. We, the doctors, walk in for 15 minutes and examine the people and talk to people and talk to the family and give interviews. Um, but the nurses are there for hours right. on end, and, and they have to be the family for these folks. I mean, they, they have to get uh, they have to get FaceTime calls to connect elderly folks and their families who pretty are, you know who can be pretty sure as they get sicker and sicker that they're never going to see them again wow um, so, and so it's difficult to, to to really summarize what that does but it takes a little piece out of them every time they have to do that that's a you know that's a great image i haven't even, i really hadn't thought about they're they're really the communicator and the conduit from the the family who's not in the hospital i mean to the patient often, right? They're, they're... Families can't visit. They, the, the families can't visit coronavirus patients, really. And, and I just can't tell you how many times I've walked in the room and, and tearful families with tearful patients, you know, they're about to go on a ventilator with a, with a you know, even money chance they're not going to make it based on their age and their, and their other parameters. And I, I just, you know, it, um, it, it takes a little out of you every time you see that, 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 that I think some people just, you don't get it back. It's, uh, it's a tough situation, and they just do this routinely, day in and day out. And I don't know how some of my nursing colleagues and friends really have made it through this. Very truthfully, yeah. I mean, the, the emotional fatigue of the workers in the healthcare field is got to just be tremendous. And I, I think that's something that that the listeners and even me, honestly, I'm, I'm not in the hospital systems, um, don't fully appreciate. It's, I mean, the more I hear you talk, the more I'm even kind of visualizing what's going on, knowing how hospitals work and how, how hard nurses work, even in a quote-unquote usual setting, that it's just got to be amazing. And I, I think that, that that's the, the load that a lot of people don't really, don't really take into consideration when they're not necessarily taking the precautions that they could to diminish the, the stre- spread of the infection, is that they're really well, transferring a load. Yeah, and in some part of the country, too, um, not so much in Memphis. Memphis is one of the largest bed bases per capita in the country. We're very fortunate in that regard. But you look at California where there are a lot more people than beds available, and you're dealing with people that are in that kind of frame of mind, and there are not enough beds to put people in. And and then you're treating them in the hallways, and it gets to be a disastrous situation because not only are people the sickest with coronavirus at risk – 
but it's harder to take care of heart attacks and strokes and other life-threatening things. And, and people die because of that sort of uh, overload, uh, not just psychological, but but literally logistical and physical overload as well. Yeah, yeah. What one of the concepts that I've heard talked about is is pandemic fatigue. Not talking about the healthcare workers, which they have their own style of, as we just talked about. But people, the, the average person in society, hearing about the coronavirus changing their lives to you know take care of their children and their jobs and whatnot. Their lives have always been very disrupted as well, in a different way. And there's a there's a kind of a, a, a pandemic fatigue that people are getting. They're tired of hearing about it. They're tired of thinking about it. And they want, just want to get back to normal. And I think that that is totally understandable from a psychological standpoint. But it's also very dangerous during the winter increase that we're having when it's like the fourth quarter analogy where we, we have to rally and stay focused because we're not finished with the game yet. Yeah, I mean, we're, the deaths are the highest they've ever been. I mean, we're coursing toward 400,000 deaths. And there's no question. I, I mean, I go out uh, with kind of local media all the time, and, and I spout out numbers. How many people are hospitalized? How many people have been tested? How many people have died? And, you know, I, I frequently wonder as I'm reading that out, uh, you know, are people – I think it's hard for people to really, really pay attention to that. And, and they just want it over. And, and the problem with that is that you still got to – we still have to do our job to, to make it over <laughs> And, and by staying away from people, by not having gatherings. And some people just in their frustration will just go out and, you know, have a get together with a bunch of people. And, you know, that's kind of putting your head in the sand. And, and when that's dangerous, you're going to have the same problems, only a sandy head at the end of that. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's just, it's dangerous. And, uh, and I see people, I mean, I have a lot of stories about people who've done some slightly uh, less than advisable things in this regard. And, and it's killed family members. Um, and, and the ultimate is people who the worst for us as healthcare workers, where you'll see people say, well, you, you know, you guys are just making this up and, and, you know, the doctors are kind of inventing the number is kind of a conspiracy. And I was like, um, you don't know many doctors. If you think there's a conspiracy going on, we aren't smart enough and, and, uh, to, to do conspiracies. I mean, Richard Nixon was the smartest president we ever had. And he, he went down in flames by, uh, cause he couldn't pull off a two bit burglary across town at a hotel. <laughs> I can assure you that doctors can't get it coordinated to uh, to sort of lie about the numbers and I know most people well, don't think that I know yeah, no, but there is some there that. is some thought of that and I but you know it it's a valid thing to address because I think that even if there, people don't think that there is some conspiracy I think they think that well that one one of the things I heard was that someone said well they're overstating the numbers because they're getting reimbursed more from Medicare Medicaid if it's a corona illness as opposed to something else and therefore, the reports of the people that have the virus are over uh, documented. And my, I don't know the details of all that, but my response to them is one of the things that I feel the most confident about accurate documentation is people dying. It's a very specific, very simple documentation. And yeah. the U.S. actually does a very good job of monitoring how, you know, what people die from. And those numbers aren't, they're not made up. These people are dying. From this and yeah so what are your i mean speak to that what, what are your thoughts yeah on well, there, well there, there are two things about that um um number one is that you know that when people fill out death certificates there, some people will say um 
well, people are the, the hospitals get more money or the doctors get more money. Well, the doctors don't. Doctors get paid by in a lot of different ways, but not by what the diagnosis is. And what depends about the complexity of illness. So there's no advantage to a doctor to say you have coronavirus uh, in terms of uh, remuneration. Uh, and a lot of people are on salary now in medicine anyway. So so there really is that's not the way doctors, uh, even people in full private practice, get paid. So there's no, that doesn't really exist. Hospitals um, get paid by DRGs, and that's just simply. Um, the number of diagnoses you have, and yes, the severity of it. So yes, they get more time allowed to them in the hospital by a serious illness like COVID-19, but they also do for heart attacks and strokes and diabetes and all those things add to the complexity. So there's no, you know, it's not it's not the kind of thing that I've ever seen really happen. Somebody say, oh, I think they have coronavirus. Let's put that down there. That, that's just, that just doesn't yeah. happen, I hate to say it. The other thing is, though, a slightly different sort of um, idea, and that is that people are putting coronavirus on death certificates when they really died of cancer or heart disease or diabetes or morbid obesity or whatever they say. And that's an interesting point because, yes, people with those illnesses do have a higher death rate a lot of times from coronavirus, but they wouldn't have died had they not gotten coronavirus. Right. So um, so death certificates are kind of complicated, as you know, but as a lot of people don't. If, if I have a patient who doesn't survive something, and when I fill out the death certificate, I may say um, they died due uh, to uh, cardiorespiratory failure due to severe pneumonia due to coronavirus. And it'll be the third one down. And people will look at that and they'll say, well, see, it's not a COVID death. It's a, it's a uh, respiratory failure death or a pneumonia death. Well, the COVID caused that. It's like saying if you have a car accident and you have a broken you know, bone in the chest and it punctures the lung and, and you you know, that's your cause of death. The car accident still is the cause of it. Yeah. And yeah. so even though it's listed down the line on the desk, you put all things on death certificates. So it's confusing for people sometimes. But but uh, but you're right. Hospitalizations and deaths are hard to fake. And uh, and even people that have, are the most suspicious, um, you know, when, when when folks die of this, it's, it's the real thing. Right. Bottom line, we got a rally. It's fourth quarter. We need to. Um, uh, stay focused on what we know works. We know masks and uh, physical distancing work. Thumbs up on that. Oh my gosh, yes. And, and so uh, you know, hand washing too probably probably a lesser importance in terms of transmission. But but we have two huge tasks right now. They are they are the biggest acute healthcare tasks in a hundred years. And one of them is to get out these very effective vaccines to everybody we can as fast as we can. But the other. Uh, always was the first job and remains a huge job, and that is um, we've got to keep we've got to give that vaccine less work to do. We, we, we've got to protect the people that haven't gotten the vaccine, um, and, and we've got to prevent these cases because it gets that much more painful for us to watch people die of this when there's a vaccine just out of our out of our grasp. Yeah. You know, I I remember uh, when the clinical data first came out for Pfizer vaccine showing 95 percent efficacy, and, and we, I just looked at it. And, and I looked off. It was like I was looking at a light rising on the horizon going, wow, you know, th- there's some hope. And I think sometimes you don't see you, you can't even see the darkness that you're in until there's a little ray of light illuminating it uh, in the form of the hope from this vaccine. And, and it's really done a lot for, you know, for the uh, you know, for the psyche of healthcare workers to have this coming out um, because it, it's uh, it, it's the way out. It, it is the end, the beginning of the end of this. But. There are a lot of people left to die between the beginning of the end and the end of the end if we don't if we don't continue to yeah. take care of those people around us. All right, so let's move to vaccines that you brought up. So, vaccine science uh, these 
the two vaccines that have been approved so far, one by Pfizer, one by Moderna, um, there's a lot of discussion. A lot of people have heard about this already, but they're new to us as far as recipients, maybe not new to science with regards to how they work. So walk us through just how, does, how are these vaccines different than what we've been receiving before, like the flu vaccine? Yeah, it's funny. I gave a talk on, on coronavirus a week or so ago, and the last slide was a, was a slide on RNA vaccines. And I, and I joked, um, I said, look, this is, the, the joke of this is it's, this is not a coronavirus slide. This is a slide I made for Zika virus infection back a few years ago. Um, so RNA vaccines are not brand new. Um, they've been, gosh, since the 90s, certainly the technology has been, uh, has been studied. And Moderna, you know, one of the major vaccines now, um, that company was formed in 2010. So at 10 years, that's a company whose job it is totally to try to make RNA vaccines. So it's not a news. Or there, there are vaccines that have been created to, uh, to Zika virus, to the flu, to rabies. They haven't really caught on very well because it's been hard to make them effective. But some of the newer technologies of getting these delicate little pieces of RNA into the, uh, into the cells are what have advanced. Plus, we've just had the white-hot intensity of every major pharmaceutical establishment in the known universe working overtime to accomplish this yeah. in the last year. So, so the way they work is this, and I usually give the analogy uh, that I've partly stolen from one of the Harvard technology blogs, um, where um, you're basically sneaking in a recipe for a foreign protein for your people to make to excite your very own police force or immune system to be very upset by this thing and to be circulating photographs of it in the community and be ready for it if it ever really shows up. And so we take these little protected pieces of RNA, we get them into cells, and if you think of um, if you think of the 46 chromosomes in our body as 46 large recipe books in a control room, they're glossy, big pieces of recipe paper with recipes on them. Nothing is done to those books. These RNA vaccines don't go in and mess with those. It's an entirely different material. Um, but when those uh, when those recipe books, we want to make proteins. You flip through there with the command folks saying we need this and this and this. And so they make proteins from those recipes by making photocopies. They don't tear out the glossy DNA pages. They make little RNA copies to send out to the kitchen uh, where the cooks just crank out what they get from the, uh, from the recipe guys. And so what we do is we sneak in the side door of the kitchen with a fake recipe for coronavirus spike protein. And you give that to the cook uh, you know, through the side door, and the cook looks at it, and he says, hmm, never seen that before, but if that's what the boss wants, that's what the boss gets. And so it churns out a supply of these coronavirus spike proteins, which we then display on our cells, and the immune system cells come by and get very irritated because all the immune system knows is us and not us. And you just made a cell produce a bunch of not us proteins on the surfaces. The immune system gets very distressed by that. And so it is armed and ready for when the real not us uh, in the form of the actual virus shows up later and we can take them out very quickly. Gotcha. All right. So let me, I'm going to walk through that just briefly again for the listeners. The, the volumes of glossy recipes are our chromosomes and they live in the nucleus, right? Right. Made of DNA. Yep. DNA. And that is genetic material, as everyone knows, but we then give little recipes of RNA. This is how the body normally works. Recipes of RNA to the kitchen to make copies of, uh, to make proteins out of the For the all recipes. the proteins we do, hair color, eye color, Every size, protein we all got. that stuff. Yeah. And so what the vaccine is, is actually a uh, little code of RNA that's a recipe for the spike protein on the coronavirus. 
and so we're putting that and there's been a lot of work to be able to get that into the cells you said that was the hard part to figure out how to keep keep it together long enough to get it into the kitchen to be made as a recipe and so then uh our own cells start making our own kitchen start making this spike protein and then the police in our body our immune system hunts it down and then the rest is uh, uh, the police have a good memory so from then on if we then see a virus come into our body um, now the police has circulated that that image around and so the your immune system says hey i've already seen that the police already showed me that you're you're not a surprise guy after all we're ready we got the forces and we're going to take care of you so what does a typical vaccine do if it's not entering a little rna recipe right so so different vaccines if you look at the flu vaccine we actually take flu virus itself and we chop it up so there's no there's no flu in a flu vaccine any more than there's, than there's COVID-19 in a uh, COVID-19 vaccine. And so we already take those little pieces of protein um, and then those circulate around in our system and the immune system finds those little pieces of protein directly. So we, uh, it, it doesn't need us to make them. It just gives those pieces of protein in there, probably a little less efficient than what we do. And furthermore, looking downstream, the advantage of the RNA vaccine is we can crank out whatever RNA sequence we want as a code for whatever protein we want uh, by just plugging it into a machine and spits it right out. So you can, it'll take us a year to make a new flu vaccine um, by waiting and, and growing new virus and chopping it up into pieces like that and then injecting those little pieces into us for the immune system to get mad at. For the RNA vaccines, uh, if all of these mutations that we're talking about in the news nowadays start accumulating, we can plug into the machine the new sequence and spit out a new vaccine with those mutations in it. Uh, and we can do that in a matter of weeks, actually. Gotcha. So, so a much more efficient method. We're really, we're really backing up to the recipe level uh, uh, and get, get putting the code in the recipe in instead of waiting to grow the virus and chop it up and then insert it. So a much more efficient process for making a vaccine. And so, and this is not, I'm, I'm glad the listeners are hearing, this is not new technology. We just happen to have had a cross section of timing where we've had other viruses that they've been working on for this that we actually never really needed it for as Americans. And we just happen to have a virus that went pandemic at the same time that the technology really was was ready to be ramped up. Now, we did have, as you say, a lot of people looking at it, and, and the, the last part of developing that technology purely, probably ramped up quickly over this last year, but it didn't all happen in a year. It's been going on for a decade or more, and it just we just happened to have really good timing, actually, in the big scheme of things, relative to yeah. you know not having a, a, a vaccine plan at all. Yeah, and it also, I mean, not to... I mean, just as an aside, this can work in cancer therapies and other sorts of things, too. So a lot of people have been looking at this technology for a long time. And and, and the, the funny thing about it is it's not a coincidence that the first two approved are RNA vaccines. It takes a huge amount of the time out of the equation uh, to make a typical vaccine like we talked about. You have to. Uh, you have to take a virus, you have to grow it up, maybe in eggs or some other medium. You have to get a large amount of it. You have to purify it. You have to chop it up. You have to. You might make a change in it. Uh, you have to regrow it then. So this takes months to years to do some of those things, and we just sort of evaporated those steps and got straight to the clinical trials 
that weren't skipped at all and they weren't shortcutted at all. But we just got to those things a lot faster with these new technologies. That I think that helps helps me, honestly. Um, I mean, you, you know this in so much more detail than obviously the average physician. And it, it really is helpful to understand um, you know, the safety in the vaccine, which is kind of where I want to move to next, because I think there's a lot of people have some fear about the vaccine. I mean, they, they know the virus. It's been around for almost a year now, and they're dealing with it in their own way, and, and they've developed a little bit of um, loss of sensitivity to maybe it, to, to have, being around it. But the vaccine now is something new, and it's something man-made that they don't know. And so there's some fear in the average person's mind about getting the vaccine. I, I'll share with the audience. I, I have, um, I, I'm scheduled actually this afternoon to go get my first vaccine. Um, I delayed because I'm not in the hospital systems and I wanted the frontline people to get it first. Physicians are obviously in the, you know, we can get it now. And so, um, uh, so I've got mine today. And, you know, there's a little bit of, you, you, you do, it crosses your mind that, okay, this is relatively new, you know, and so I'm currently feeling fine. I don't have coronavirus. I'm, you know, life's good. And I'm getting ready to walk into a, a, a pharmacy and they're going to stick, you know, a needle in my arm and give me something that's foreign. There's a little anxiety. I mean, nothing dramatic, but I'm in the medical field and I understand a lot of what we've been talking about, probably in more detail than the average listener. So I can imagine the average listener will have even a heightened level of anxiety. So what I want to partly do today is help lower that anxiety for people who are contemplating that because I think there's been a lot of, in today's age of misinformation, um, I think there's been a lot of that. And so I want to help, you know, in my small way to help diminish the fear. So um, let's talk about that. What, you know, the, the, um, the risks of getting the vaccine. Yeah. And, and let me say that, let me start with my most powerful argument first. And that is that you're not going to sneak up on me, an immunologist and virologist, or anybody that does what I do with sort of things we hadn't thought about or considered. Um, and just to summarize my feeling about it, I walked around for a week with my sleeve rolled up and my arm out waiting for somebody to run into me with a coronavirus vaccine needle. So uh, <laughs> I was very eager to get it, knowing everything that I know about this. So that's um, interesting. So hold on. So you made yeah. a good point. So you actually know the details of vaccines so much that you actually know what you should be afraid of, right? Yeah, I mean, to some no, I you, you, Yeah, I mean, more than me, you were like, yeah, no, I'm not taking that vaccine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because you know what could go wrong medically and specifically with vaccines. So um, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about the flip side of that, that, you know, um, your, your knowledge actually would make, and your willingness to get it, your eagerness to get it is a really good uh, statement of the safety of the vaccine. I think that's the most powerful statement that healthcare workers can make. I mean, I mean, we all know more about it. We have seen the alternative. Um, and, and I can promise you with me, it was a statistical no brainer. Um, if you look at I me, mean, I mean, we dealt with the first major fear that people have, and that was this, this thing came out too fast. And I hope we sort of pointed out that it's really not that fast. Yeah. When you look at the technology, what's fast is that we got past some of the preliminary stuff that we've never been able to get past that quickly before onto the important things uh, in the trials. And in those trials, tens of thousands of people were vaccinated, not to mention millions already now that it's that it's come out, um, but tens of thousands. And of those tens of thousands of people, essentially nobody had any significantly serious side effects. Um, and 
of the people that got COVID-19 in the trials, 95% of them were in the placebo, the saline shot, fake uh, vaccine arm. Only 5% of the cases occurred in really either of the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the new uh, vaccines, the new RNA vaccines. So uh, the Moderna and the Pfizer were essentially the same. The effectiveness yeah. is extraordinary. I mean, people were talking about, well, we'll, we'll be okay if we have one that's more than 50% effective. We'd really like to get to 70%. But, I mean, we blew right by that to something that we had never really imagined likely. Um, and so the effectiveness is extraordinary. And so uh, – and the safety really too. I, I summed up the safety um, in, in one piece, and I was talking to the local media, and we talked about this for about half an hour. And, uh, and they, they were talking about the two people that got the vaccine in the UK the first day they did it because they started it before we did. And on that first day, two healthcare workers had sort of anaphylactic or allergic reactions. Now, these are people that carry around – both of these people turned out to be highly allergic folks. They carry around EpiPens in their pocket. They react to everything north of great Kool-Aid, and they know it. Um, and so they did have a reaction. They're both fine. They didn't require hospitalization, I think, either of them. They went home and did great and got their vaccine uh, safely uh, despite that reaction. During the time that we talked about that with the media here for about half an hour, between 70 or some odd people had died of coronavirus in the United States alone. Um, so, so really, I was like, what more do I need to tell you than that? Um, yeah. we, we're, we're spending 30 minutes worried about two people who did fine. And, you know, uh, somewhere under 100 people died of coronavirus while we were chatting about it. So if you need anything more than that, I, I don't. But, um, yeah. but one of the other situation is that people worry about is the, uh, the so-called long-term effects of this vaccine. They're worried about what happens. They say, I'm just going to wait and see what happens to other people first. Mm -hmm. Well, I can tell you what's going to happen. Those people are going to avoid getting COVID-19 is going to be the result. And you are not if you kind of wait to see what happens to them because we're kind of in the peak, the late stages of the peak of the pandemic. So that's what's going to happen. Now, in terms of are there long-term effects of this vaccine, it's not really much of a thing. There are plenty of uh, there are plenty of vaccine reactions that people have had through the years, but it's not really a thing that people develop vaccine troubles six and 12 months down the road. That's not really a known phenomenon. There are plenty of vaccine problems that happen right away and that can last. That does happen. Um, but there's no evidence that that these tens of thousands of people in the trials are not a valid sampling of what's, of what's going to happen. Um, so, so there really is no evidence that there are long-term effects of this vaccine. Are there long-term effects of coronavirus? You betcha. Um, and we're learning more about them every day. I mean, there right. are plenty of people who have, who have continued you know, neuropathic pain in their legs. They have continued shortness of breath or cough or lung troubles or, or fatigue, not to mention the fact that, that new, uh, new data and studies are suggesting that there could even be some central nervous system, little micro hemorrhages, mini strokes, if you will, almost, that happen in the brain of people. We didn't learn this right away because people were kind of afraid to do autopsies on folks that had died of coronavirus because of the infection risk. But now that we're getting those, we see that there are things in there that might potentially predispose to Alzheimer's 40 years from now. Great so point. Great talk point. about unknown, unknown risks. Right. They're so, all over the so place. So the concept the of getting the virus and, you know, getting through it and, and then, you know, if, if I think, well, I, I don't need the vaccine because I'm just going to do, you know, natural immunity. I'll get the virus. I'll get through it and then I'll be immune. It, there are so many other things that can happen down the road. That's a great point that, that 
the virus, it, we don't even know, the, the virus is, I mean, the virus is brand new and the vaccine's brand new. The, we're learning a lot more bad things about the brand new virus than the brand new vaccine. Um, and and yeah. it stands to reason. So let's talk a little bit about the psychology of this, like avoidance um, and, and assessment of, humans' basic assessment of risk, because I think that's, it's an important thing to, to contemplate um, psychologically what's going on in the human mind when they're trying to assess risk, because that's really what we're talking about. This, what happens, I talk a lot about the alarm system in our brain. I mean, we have, we have a system that, that keeps us going as a species, and that alarm system is key for keeping us going. So it is totally normal and, and okay for you to be alarmed or anxious or concerned about what you're doing to your body. That is completely normal. Um, it's the, the, what happens when we get alarmed initially is alarm initially turns off our thinking process. We just react. But when it's chronic kind of uh, ongoing alarm like we're having with a pandemic, then your cognition comes back into play and you start thinking and rationalizing how to lower the alarm because no one likes walking around in an alarm state all the time. So we start talking to ourselves to lower our alarm and that's sometimes where the problem comes in with making decisions is we, we start telling ourselves whatever we need to hear to lower the alarm, not necessarily what is true or valid scientifically. And I, th I think that's important for the listener to understand that we need to think a little bit here about what are we telling ourselves. So let's talk about a risk assessment as humans. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, at the risk of embarrassing myself and talking about psychology with a psychiatrist, as I as I think, as I as I look at it, um, we human beings are pretty crappy at a, at comparing two fairly low risk items. The, the The example that always gets pointed out is if if there is a commercial plane crash somewhere in the United States or in the world for that matter, people all of a sudden say, "Whoa, whoa." I'm going to take my car for my next vacation. I'm going to drive 400 miles because those planes are just not safe. Um, when in the point of reality, um, you've done a dramatically more dangerous thing by driving 400 miles than you have by taking another plane flight, um, despite that recent crash. But our brains tell us danger, danger, uh, and, it, and it forgets that, that while both risks are really quite low, um, you have this you have this false sense of control that your tire might not blow out at 80 miles an hour. Somebody else might not cross the median at you. You don't, you don't consider those things. You think since you're in a passenger seat and somebody else is driving the plane that you don't have any control. And I think it incites kind of some of the wrong alarm bells. Yep. By the same token, I think people, um, patients, when I deal with them, have uh, a couple of, of, uh, of things that can go haywire in their assessment as well. People who are feeling fine don't want to do anything. They don't want to go get their cancer screening and or, or, or their vaccine or something like that because I'm fine. Leave me alone. I'm yep, fine. Yep. Um, but if they're sick, the thing can can turn on us the wrong way too because um, you know people say, "Well, go. I'm going to the doctor. I want an antibiotic." Well, if you have a viral infection, antibiotics aren't going to help you. They may even hurt you. But by golly, people want something because they're sick and they, yeah, want, they want to do action. something. Even if that something is is probably not much to do. So I think in some ways that we can, that's sort of it, it fights against us in that sometimes it tells us not to get the vaccine and it may take us, tell us to take something that's not going to be helpful in some ways. Well, Steve, I'd say you did quite well in your psychology classes. Uh, your points are uh, right on the mark. I mean, I, I was doing some 
reading by a psychologist who thinks about this a lot more than you and me even, uh, Paul Slovic, S-L-O-V-I-C. He's a psychologist at University of Oregon. He's president of this thing called Decision Research. So it's a group of scientists around the world that, that study decision-making, and specifically during times of stress. I'm not going to uh, touch on all the points. They came up with about 14 factors that uh, they think uh, can categorize how people assess risk. One of the ones is called scope, the scope of what you're looking at. So cataclysmic events like the airplane crash um, are much scarier than, than chronic risk like the car driving. Um, and so people react more to a cataclysmic uh, threat than a chronic threat, even though the percent chance, as you perfectly described, uh, can be higher on the chronic chance. So, um, so that was one of the 14 that you nailed right off the top of the bat. Um, a couple of them. Let's just walk through these because I think this will inform some of what's been going on with the coronavirus. The first one is trust. When people trust the officials providing information about a risk or the process they, they used to assess the risk, they tend to be less afraid than if they don't trust the person telling them there's a risk. And that seems so obvious, right? But yeah. I think that that's part of the problem these days is that we don't have a, a centralized voice telling us what's going on. We have so many different ways of getting information and some of it's just, you know, we trust the person who is our friend who knows nothing about medicine that tells us something about the vaccine <laughs> than a strange physician on the TV telling us something, right? It's Your like, well-spoken, charming <laughs> brother-in-law, right? <laughs> so we're, you know, we're trusting the wrong person in that case. So the trust is one. Um, Origin, like, like um, the, the location of the risk. So people are less concerned about risk they incur themselves as opposed to risk that's imposed upon them. So great example of the, the vaccine. Like I'm in charge of whether or not I get the coronavirus, quote unquote, but I'm, I'm not in charge of you giving me a vaccine that I didn't get to look at or study. So they're, they're more comfortable with their own risk taking than than letting you give them something. Before we wrap up, let me ask you this. Where are we on the, um, you think, time frame for uh, getting enough vaccinations out that our um, you know, society can get to more normal uh, interactive behavior? And I know that's a loaded question, but just kind of ballpark it for, for listeners. No, what sure. are your it's a point. It's a point of real irritation for me. I, I do not have a sense of humor or any patience with this vaccine not getting out um, and getting distributed. I mean, there, a lot of us are working overtime. People are have had their livelihoods destroyed. Uh, elderly people are shut in from this. Uh, people need to work. Uh, we don't need to be knocking off at 5 o'clock if we don't have this fixed. We need to work harder and smarter to get this out to people. Now, it's nice to, to, uh, to bolster up the healthcare system and to get those long-term care facility occupants vaccinated because that takes the biggest legs out from under the virus, if it will. That, that gives us the biggest uh, bang for our buck. But I think, you know, um, we've also got to, we've just got to go through the efforts to get this stuff out there. We've got, we've got to communicate. We have to, um, we have to, as I tell people, if there's a box of frozen virus somewhere in a freezer, we need to shine the, the bright light of scrutiny on whoever's holding that box and why is it not next to someone about to be, to be injected. If we got this thing out efficiently, you know, we could be seeing a tremendous turn in the uh, in the in the uh, in the epidemic or the pandemic by the summer I think but certainly by the fall and, and we just hope that you know, as you get your groups of 10 people that have all been vaccinated you can actually be around each other in that circumstance you just can't yet 
be totally safe around people who haven't been vaccinated. That's what herd immunity is. Um, but we've got to work with the, you know, we've got to work with the hospitals. We've got to work with health departments. We've got to work with the states. Uh, wherever the weak links, we need to identify them and uh, and get them taken care of. Because um, you know, we're hoping that if that if we speed up the pace of this thing, we, we can really make a serious dent in the way we live our lives by the end of the summer. Well, you brought up another point that I want to just touch base on real quick. So. If someone gets the vaccine, yeah, what is what is their behavior? Can they can they just like willingly walk around and and uh, do whatever they want to do? What 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 yeah, can they? It's, do? it's a very a very important question. And you, though you probably can be around other people who've been vaccinated a, a lot more safely, the problem is that we we're not totally clear that as a vaccinated person you can't give it to an unvaccinated person the the, the infection and, and people use that disingenuously as a reason not to get vaccinated well look we can't even keep you from giving it to somebody else and it probably does prevent a but, whole lot of it but let's clarify you're not i want to clarify for the listener because i'm yeah. afraid they may misunderstand you wouldn't be able to give it to someone because you got vaccinated you would be able to you might give it to someone because even though you got vaccinated, you still got infected. You may just not know it. Is that what you're saying? Yes, exactly. Okay. Thank you for correcting that, because you can't get the infection from the vaccine. Right. Uh, because there's no there's no vaccine in it. I mean, there's no virus in the vaccine. But but what happens is the vaccine trials looked at people who were symptomatic and who had symptoms of COVID-19 and then got tested. And that's how we did that. Now, but but remembering that. Uh, and, and it protected those people. Even the people that broke through the 5% that happened to the vaccinated people didn't get very sick from it. But we know that 25 to 40 or more percent of these people, of the infections out there are, are obtained from asymptomatic people. Asymptomatic, so we meaning no symptoms. Yeah, 20 yeah, to 40% no are from people with no symptoms. Okay. Yeah, or more. Yeah. And so, so we don't know for sure yet. Um, whether you can still give the uh, you can get the infection and it doesn't give you any symptoms you have an asymptomatic or subclinical infection but some people in that situation despite the vaccine and they're not symptomatic maybe because they got the vaccine they're really not it's not going to make them sick but it's conceivable but they could have just a little bit of virus replicating in their nose not get a foothold the immune system beats it back but they could conceivably give it to someone who hasn't uh, had the vaccine yet and so we just don't know how many we think it cuts it down dramatically but the numbers aren't perfect yet. And so until you get out to, to a larger number of people all around you in the population getting the vaccine, that's when you know that, uh, that the vaccine has nowhere to go. You're unlikely to encounter somebody who's not vaccinated. And if you do, they're going to be immune, uh, somebody that is vaccinated. So all of a sudden, the, vac- the virus has nowhere to go. Yeah, yeah. And we have to wait until we're closer to that point before we can just throw our masks off and run around and not worry about gotcha. the people surrounding gotcha. us. We know we'll be protected, but we still have a responsibility to protect those who are most at risk who haven't been vaccinated for a while yet. Excellent. Well. Steve, I know you're busy. I appreciate you taking your time. And this has been very helpful to me personally, uh, hopefully to our listeners as well. Um, Keep up all the great work you're doing. And again, thanks again. Always great to talk to you, Mark. Thanks for having me. To listen to Dr. Mark Westfall live, check out O Brother Radio on Birmingham Mountain Radio, 107.3 FM in Birmingham, 97.5 in Tuscaloosa, at bhammountainradio.com or on the free BMR app. Join in with your questions and comments on Twitter at Lockamy Brothers.